All right, First John, chapter three. If you don't know where First John is, just go to the end of the Bible and start working your way back. It's not too far away from there. All right. We are talking about um, what we should be today. And I guess the question is, why would anybody give a sermon on what a Christian should be? <laughs> it's obvious, right? No, it's right. It's not obvious. It's not obvious. I would say it's not obvious to most people, actually. And before I became a Christian, it wasn't obvious to me. And I was raised in a church. In fact, when I went through confirmation class as a little junior high Lutheran, I, I was asked to write a paper on my Christian faith which I did, and everybody had to write one. And out of the dozen or so young people, two were chosen to read theirs in church, and I was one of, their, one of those two. So um, I had to read it from the pulpit at church on the day that we were being confirmed. And that was scary. I mean, being up in the pulpit, that's scary. In fact, it's still scary, but it's scary in a different way. But now, but um, anyway, I did read my paper, and, and I got confirmed, but the pastor wrote this comment on my paper um, when I first wrote it. And he was being kind. He was trying to point something out to me. But he wrote, you didn't mention Jesus once. <laughs> uh, that didn't bother me too much at the time. Except uh, I didn't want to blow it. You know, Was that a fatal error? Was I going to be booted or rejected? They're not going to confirm me. And um, you know, I got baptized long before I could speak. In fact, I wore this lovely little white gown. I was <laughs> not that big. <laughs> yeah, it was a dress basically. Yeah, it was pretty weird. I think my mother kept it. But um, confirmation when you're in junior high is supposed to affirm the promise of the baptism that you had that you had no choice in. So in, in some way it made me a child of God. I mean that was the idea. Obviously knowing Jesus was not essential for that because they went ahead and confirmed me even though I didn't mention Jesus as part of my faith at all. <laughs> And the only thing I remember about being confirmed is that it was scary being in the pulpit and those words on the paper, I remember that, uh, you didn't mention Jesus once. Now, I was not against Jesus. I'm all for Jesus. I, I, I kind of like Jesus. In fact, we had this gigantic stained glass in our church with Jesus sitting on the throne with a crown on his head and the mitre and all the angels around him. And it, I would just sit there as a little kid and look at it during the service, you know, and not really knowing what was going on. And it blew me away. It was so cool. It was like goosebump stuff, you know. I thought it was wonderful. And I liked the movie The Robe, and um, even though they never really showed Jesus' face or anything, but when he kind of went by the main characters, there was really cool music that was playing. And, and I really liked it when he was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that struck me with a real hard kind of, I thought that was a wonderful thing that he said that. And, and, uh, and the, then this big storm came up, you know, and the soldiers were all scared and running and fleeing. And I thought that was all great stuff. So I wasn't against Jesus at all. I, I really liked Jesus. But I didn't love him. And I certainly didn't know him. Didn't have a relationship with him. And all through my church years, I don't really remember anybody saying that I had to love him or that it was required that I love him or that... It would please God if I loved him or that he was worthy of my love. I don't remember that. So I didn't mention him in my paper. I didn't say anything about him. I just wrote about being a good person, basically, and God helping me be a good person. That's what my paper was about. My church taught me that being a Christian was just that, to be a good person. That's, that's what we were taught. 
And that's what most people would say if you said, what should a Christian be? What, what, what a Christian should be? Tell me what a Christian should be. And what would the average person say? Be kind and help other people. That's what a Christian should be. That's what they would say. Now, certainly Christians should be kind and help other people. That's certainly true. But that isn't what it means to be a Christian. A Muslim can do that. Uh, any, any other religion can do that. A Buddhist could do that. It doesn't make you a Christian to be kind and help people. A Christian is a person saved from God's judgment on sinners through the blood of Jesus who is God in human flesh and whose death and resurrection accomplished everything that needed to be done to save me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what a Christian is. A Christian puts his or her trust in Christ for eternal life because he accomplished that through his death on the cross. And there's more. A Christian, as we saw in 1 John 2.29, the last verse of chapter 2, a Christian is born of God. So there's a principle at work in us. It's a result of God indwelling us through the person of the Holy Spirit. There is then this really very powerful internal agent for change directing us and prompting us and empowering us to live for Jesus as our King and as our Savior. Steve Lawson, the popular preacher, he said, salvation is not making a good person better, nor a sick person well. It is making a dead person alive in Christ. And that's exactly right. Spiritually dead people alive in Christ. That's what it is. It's not making a good person better. A spiritually alive person in Christ is better. But that's not what it's about. So that's what the Bible teaches, what he said there. So the Bible calls it a heart transplant. It really does. We talked about a lung transplant in sharing time this morning. I have a friend I grew up with who does heart transplants. That's what he does for a living. But this is a little bit different, what we're talking about in the Bible. But it's true that without a heart transplant, you are spiritually dead. And you cannot have a relationship with God without a heart transplant. It has to happen. We can't become his child because... Without the heart transplant, we won't want to have a relationship with him. We don't want him for who he is as our father. So we might want a relationship with an idol, a God of our imagination, one that we sort of invented or one we're pleased with. But everybody needs this heart transplant. And that goes way back into the Old Testament. In fact, the words of the prophet Ezekiel talking about what God was going to do for Israel someday because they were perpetually sinning all the time and worshiping idols. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19, God says, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. This is the promise of the new covenant he's talking about here. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. It's a great passage. Well, why does he have to do that? Well, a little later in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 16, he says, because they rejected my ordinances, and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. And our hearts do too, before this new birth happens. Now, we don't, might not worship stone and wood idols, but we create our own God, or we reject God altogether. 
and we make ourselves the idol. That's the human condition, idolatry. So the stone heart is excluding God from coming in, from taking over, from ruling our lives. A soft heart welcomes him in, but we can't make our stone heart soft. He has to do that. That's why he says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give, I will give you a heart of flesh. So the soft heart understands by God's spirit that God is holy and we are not holy. God is holy and we are not holy. So we stand guilty of having violated a human being's, actually our most sacred purpose for existence, which is to give God all the honor and love and devotion that he actually deserves and to serve him with our whole heart. That's what is right. That's what we should be. Instead, we do what we want to do. That's what most people do. The soft heart opens us up to the reality of who God is and what our great duty is and, and points us in that direction and leads us down that path. The soft heart restores us to God and that begins with confessing that we are indeed sinners and we embrace the Savior that God has provided. And there's only one, his name is Jesus. And we come to him and embrace him with our hearts. And if we don't see Jesus right, then we can't even begin to do it. In fact, think about it. What if I had included Jesus on my little confirmation class paper? What if I had said that, you know what? Uh, Jesus means a lot to me. He's my role model and I hope I can follow his teachings. He inspires me to be helpful and kind. Then he wouldn't have written, you didn't mention Jesus once in your paper. He wouldn't have written that. I've been okay. Or would I have been? It would have made my pastor happy if I had written that, but it wouldn't do anything for my salvation or my soul. Nothing. I can't find forgiveness by accepting Jesus as a role model because I can never live up to that. And I'm still a sinner. It doesn't change anything. I need him as a savior. And I need to bow the knee to him as a king because that's who he is. I need to have the right Jesus. So, 1 John. John has been setting forth these tests of authenticity. What makes a Christian a real Christian? Or a professing Christian a real Christian? How do you distinguish? What is a real Christian? So in chapter 2, we talked about three different areas. One was obedience to the commands of God. The second one was loving the brethren. And the third one was rightly understanding who Jesus is. It's a doctrinal part, that part. What's the truth about him? So obedience, love, and the real Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus. Those are the key areas of measurement. Those are the tests of authenticity. In chapter three, John's gonna go right back through those three again. And today we're getting to the first one again. So um, he's gonna revisit each one, but in a fresh way. So let's get a running start. Let's take that last verse in chapter two, verse 29. And I'm gonna keep reading from there. We're gonna move into chapter three. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Then he says, beloved, now we are children of God. 
and it has not yet appeared what we will be, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's where we stopped last time. Key ideas in there are born of him. Big emphasis there. We're born of him is what makes us his children. We're actually born of God and that makes us his children by adoption. Also notice in verse 29, what's it say about God? He is righteous. And being born of him means that we're going to be practicing righteousness. Righteousness, what is that? That includes obeying all of God's commands as defined in the New Testament, as well as molding our attitudes in a Christ-like manner and developing godly character and pursuing God with our whole hearts. That's what, it, that's what righteousness is. So we practice righteousness. We do righteousness. We live it out. We actually do it. We don't just believe it. It's a big difference between saying, I'm all for righteousness. Go, go, go. But never doing a thing about it. It means actually doing it. So last week in 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, we talked about what the true child will be when Jesus comes. And then verse 3 flows right out of that. Look at verse 2 again. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him, verse 3 now, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure purifies himself. What, is it, what kind of image does that conjure up in the mind of the average person? If you said, you need to purify yourself, what would they say? Well, oh yeah, I need to detox. I need to uh, get these contaminants out of my system. It has something to do with health, right? Well, that's not what he's talking about. Purify yourself is a moral and spiritual purification. It's spiritual health. Ridding ourselves of the toxin of sins. Because Christ is pure. Well, how is he pure? He's free from sin. He never sinned. No wickedness of any kind taints the Lord Jesus. He was perfect. And John says that about God all the way back in chapter 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And who's Jesus? He is God become man. He's God in human flesh. And he, it says in John's gospel, John chapter 1, he is the light of men. In him there is no darkness at all. So Jesus is God in the flesh, a perfectly sinless man, pure. And because he is our creator and our savior and our king, how do we serve him? How do we best serve him? What does he want from us? He wants us to purify ourselves of sin, to get rid of it, to stop doing it. Wrong thinking, corrupt desires, wrong motives, purifying oneself is an internal work. It's something we're doing on the inside so that what is righteous behavior comes out of us. It's soul work as they used to say in the Puritan days. And notice John says everyone, everyone who has this hope fixed on himself purifies himself. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Everyone. So this desire, this work of purification is a mark of being a true Christian because everyone who f fixes their hope on Christ does that. 
we purify ourselves. We do something internally to please God with the way we think and live our lives. If there is no desire, I mean zero effort, no intent at all to become pure as he is pure, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. If it doesn't mean anything to us, then how dare we even think that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We never valued that at all if we don't work on this process of purification. Can a child of God, a person that is actually born of him, have no interest in pleasing him? Surely we see it as something greatly to be desired if we're a true Christian, to please him. If we value purity of soul, we, we look forward to that sin-free nature in the resurrection. And even now we start to purify ourselves. We, we know how important that is. Now previously we talked uh, in about, so we've kind of looked at this as sort of a pattern here in John. What we are, what are we? We're children of God. What we will be, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So today we're talking about what we should be. And that's that idea of purifying ourselves. So, as God's children, our natural desire is to please the Father. The world thinks, we mentioned that before too, the world thinks we, we're afraid of his lightning bolts. And that's why we're good. We're just cowering in the corner. Remember chapter 1 of verse 3, he said, For this reason the world does not know us. Because it did not know him. They don't understand. That's all they can think of. You're being good because you're afraid. That failure of the world to understand us led John to talk about what we are now. Now we are children of God. Such we are, he says. The world can't understand being a child of God. We are God's children by adoption. And we weren't adopted because we were so cute. We were the cutest puppy in the pack. That's not what happened. We were wretched. We were adopted as an act of saving grace. Of a Gracious God saving unworthy people. So we serve him as grateful children. There was a Christian girl named Emily who was uh, out with some friends from school. And most of the school friends had some idea to pursue a certain activity that um, God would clearly not approve of. And Emily was saying, well, let's go do something else. You know, I can't really do that because I'm a Christian. And uh, her friends, a couple of them teased her and they accused her of living in fear. He said, are you afraid your God is going to hurt you? And she said, no, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt him. That's a godly fear. Not hurt him in the sense that he's going to be damaged, but to hurt his heart because she's not faithful. She doesn't want to grieve a very wonderful father, her perfect father. That's how a true Christian thinks about her walk with God. The world doesn't understand it. They can't understand it. But that's what it is. So you see an unbeliever. An unbeliever who sins. Is a creature. Sinning, sinning against the creator. That's what they are. And that's the, the easiest way to think about it. A Christian who sins. Is a child. Sinning against her father. And that's what makes it different. An unbeliever sins against the law. A believer sins against love. It's very different. 
So the world doesn't even think about God in that way in regard to their attitudes and actions, their internal self, their need for purification, self-purification. But we do think that way. It's such a huge difference. And yeah, we're going to blow it sometimes. You are looking at a guy that's blown it many times in my life. But God is gracious. Our concern, my concern, is to honor him. That is the true Christian's real concern. How do I honor him? And if you blow it, you honor him by dealing with your blowing it, right? Seeing it as sin, confessing it, making amends to those that you may have wounded or hurt. That's what it means to honor him. That's part of purification right there. I think that's why John is focusing so much on sonship in this part of the letter. He really starts now focusing on that and then the rest of the letter uh, carries that idea through. Because like Emily, we, we love the Father. So in chapters 1 and 2, he talked a lot about abiding, uh, fellowship with the Father and the Son. And that's important an idea too. He used the word abide like 20 times. A Christian abiding in God will be obedient to God and love the brethren, he says. John has already said that. But now the emphasis is going to be on this new birth idea, the thing, the thing that makes us children of God. So we saw it first in chapter 2, verse 29. And today we're going to see it in verse 9 of chapter 3. And then as we keep working through 1 John, we'll see it in 4, 7, 5, 1, 5, 4, 5, 18. I mean, that's the new thing he's going to be using, talking about. So be ready. So where we are today in John, he's going to build a very powerful case for righteousness as the natural activity of the true Christian. And he does it by presenting some very stark contrasts. You don't want to misunderstand them, but you do want to grasp what he's trying to say here because it's really clear. It can't be any clearer than that, but it can cause a little bit of confusion. So let's deal with it. So verse four is in contrast to verse three. So he sort of stopped at verse three. And now I'm going to read verse 3 again and then we're going to work our way into verse 4, okay? Verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You see that? So there's two everyones. There's a verse 3 everyone and a verse 4 everyone. Very big difference between those two. And notice how John uses, well, in my Bible, it's the word practices. Some of the other translations says do or does or something like that. But in verse 4, practices or makes or does is an activity. That's an active thing. So we talked about that word previously in chapter 2, verse 29, when he used it with righteousness. Those who practice righteousness. Righteousness is what people born of God do. It's how they choose to live their lives. Here... Sin is what those people do who practice lawlessness, who make that their thing to do, to be. And notice very carefully in verse 4, John um, gives definition to sin for us. Sin, he says, is lawlessness. So lawlessness isn't just a thing you do. Lawlessness is a condition. It's a condition of your heart, actually. It's more than breaking the law. It's, it's an attitude. It's the disposition of the human heart. It's that desire to rebel against God. So fundamentally, because sin is rebellion, 
at its core. That's the main idea of it. The main idea is rejecting God as the one who we owe allegiance to or who sets our standard for us. That's why people make up their own standards because they've rejected God. So they're gonna say, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. So rebellion says, I will choose right and wrong. I will make that decision. And my decision will be based on my preferences, not on God's will. Or they'll create God in their own image and, in their own image and say whatever I think is right and wrong is God's will. Because I've invented God and he just perfectly coheres with me. <laughs> We're on the same page. Thank you, Lord. Rebellion says I will choose right and wrong based on my preferences, not God's will. So at its root, it's, I guess the best word is defiance. It's a defiance of God. And specific sins are the fruit of this defiance, this rebellion against God. It's like a child, you know, you tell them to sit down. They don't do it, so you give them a swat and they sit down. And when they sit down after a swat, what face do they give you? Well, frequently. Some children say, so sorry. But generally it's, I'm sitting. That's a rebellious heart. It's a face of defiance. And adults are like that with God. Adults are like that with the real God. I have my own way. Don't crowd me. Don't preach to me. I am a good person. How do you know you're good? Because I define good for me and I'm great. <laughs> I'm doing wonderfully well. Because so if, if you say according to who are you good, they'll say according to me. And that's all that matters. That's the modern mindset. That's where people are today pretty much. But listen, lawlessness, this defiance or this rebellious spirit is, it's not always monstrously evil. In fact, it usually isn't. It doesn't have to be to be wicked. For most people, it's what you might call mundane evil. Everyday sort of evil. Pettiness, gossip, slandering your enemies, your rivals. Little ways to find a cheat, unrighteous anger, um, selfishness, promiscuity, drunkenness, just your basic common sins of man. We all do that sort of thing, right? And when we all go to hell together, we'll be doing those things together in hell. <laughs> You know, most people behave well enough because life is just easier if you're not an idiot or a fiend. I mean, if, if you're a fiend, you'll probably go to jail. And if you're an idiot, you'll lose everything and live in the street and all that kind of stuff. So people don't want to do that. So they're reasonably well behaved. But that's not righteousness. That's not a, that's not a life that isn't defiant. You're just defiant more normally. It's, it's everyday sorts of sins. They don't choose trouble because trouble makes life messy and who wants to have a messy life? I want to have a good life. I want to be happy. I want to have my own place. What did Francis Schaeffer call the American dream? Personal peace and affluence. That's what he called it. That's what people want. Most people. Some people just want to terrorize. But most people just want, leave me alone and give me lots of stuff. Let me earn, or earn my stuff. You know, let me live in a nice place. And they're perfectly content. So who do, I don't really need a God like yours. I don't need to be forgiven. I've got everything I need till I die. Yeah, but what about when you die? 
We'll worry about that when we get there. So usually what people do that are practicing lawlessness is not monstrous evil. It's just rejecting God and building a life that they, they like. It's not necessarily civilizational destroying monstrous sins. It's just I want to do my own thing which is exactly what Satan promised Adam and Eve in the garden. Bite it. You will know good and evil. You will determine good and evil for yourself. You will be autonomous. You know what that word autonomous means? Literally, it means auto, self. Namas is the Greek word for law. You'll be a law unto yourself. And that's what most people are. And if they obey other laws, it's only so they can keep on being autonomous as far as they can and have their good life and be left alone. So verse 4 establishes that practicing sin, a life of sin, is a life of lawlessness, this rebellion. It's an internal thing. So the natural question is, how can a true child of God live in rebellion? How can a true child of God practice lawlessness? Well, they, they can't. Jesus, our King and Savior, didn't come so that we would live in rebellion against God. He didn't save us for that purpose either. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So Christ is sinless because he's righteous, perfectly righteous. And his goodness, his very positive goodness, his perfect goodness, makes sin for him impossible. He can't sin. He won't sin. That same goodness has this profound intention to destroy evil, to destroy sin, to remove it. So for his people, his children, he, the first thing he did was satisfy God's just penalty on sin by his atonement, by bearing the penalty of sin himself, to remove the penalty of sin from us. As John the Baptist said it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus has addressed our sin by freeing us from its penalty, we are to have the same purpose and desire that sin... All sin, my sin, should be no more. That's our natural desire as a child of God. As his beloved children, we give up self to serve like he did. Sin must have no part in living for him. So we have to put aside pride and ego. We speak truth and we abhor lying and we're honest in business. We're honest in life. We don't use people, we serve people. There's a big difference between those two things. All of our relationships are about what is doing best for other people, which is really the best definition of love. I want what's best for you and I will do all I can to bring about what's best for you. That's, that's righteous living. That's Christ-like living. That's the model Jesus gave us. It's always how he conducted his own self, his own life. What did he say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the model for us, behavior-wise. He laid down his life for other people and for those who are his, the children of God, there is no room for anything else. There's no room for petty quarreling or for ego or for the sins of the flesh. You remember those, the sins of the flesh? You remember those? 
Paul actually lists them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. He, well, he doesn't list all of them, but he gives a pretty hefty list. Let me read them for you. This is what, this is Ephesians 5, I mean Galatians 5, 19. Galatians 5, 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Oh my goodness, there goes our culture's favorite sins. Just right, right out the door, right away. Instant gratification and promiscuity. It's, it's all gone. All the college campuses shut down. Verse 20. He adds idolatry. Sorcery. I always have to mention. Sorcery is the Greek, Greek word. See if you can hear an English word in this. Pharmakia. It's, it is connected to taking illicit drugs. It is because that's how they used to worship. So that's sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. <laughs> of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He just flat out says it. It's so incompatible with what a Christian is. They don't expect to show up in heaven with that. All of that's inc incompatible with Christ. So for the true Christian, Christ has taken away sin by paying its penalty. And John points out also by sanctifying his people, changing them. And when all things are, are settled out and he comes in judgment, he's going to take away sins by taking all the ungodly people out of the world and putting them in a place they don't want to go. Now, John keeps going here. He needs to drive this home. So verse 6, John makes a very definitive statement, a strict division, very black and white, plain separation. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now that's meant to be very jarring. Well, well but I do sin sometimes. I mean, what is, that, what is he saying there? No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now he's got to mean practicing lawlessness here because we all sin and he's already talked about us as sinners. So he has to be talking about a willful defiance against God, practicing lawlessness, that kind of sinning. Every Christian commits sins because we're not glorified yet and we give in to our worst nature sometimes. I don't know any Christian, I don't know any Christian that says, actually I think I met one once. But uh, I'm sure glad I walk like Jesus every moment. I don't, I don't know too many Christians like that. I used to be self-centered and lose my temper sometimes and fail in loving my spouse and occasionally judging other people harshly. Thank the Lord I never do that anymore. I don't know too many people like that. I am perfectly sanctified. No godly Christian claims sinlessness. In fact, the greatest Christians you know, the most admirable Christians you know, the people that are farthest along in sanctification and growth and spiritual maturity and righteousness, they know their own sins more than you do. They are hyper aware of their failings. They know they're not perfect or sinless or anything like that. All of the great saints down through history, all the great Christians, all the great missionaries, all the great preachers, all the great scholars, 
all were very aware of their own sin. You become more humble as you grow in Christ because you're more aware. Things you didn't used to think about as sin so much, you're like, yeah, it really is sin in me. I got to work on that one too. And John already addressed this anyway at the beginning of the letter. In the first chapter, remember, verse 8 and 9, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. And then right after that he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? Remember that? So he's assuming we're going to sin and he says, you're kind of deceiving yourself if you say you have no sin. So he's assuring us there that forgiveness is readily available when we do sin. So I think we have to see John's language in this chapter 3 text that we're looking at as something beyond just a Christian who loves Jesus and wants to be righteous and serve God and who fails sometimes. It's something different than that. Practicing sin is something different than slipping or even battling sin and struggling with something that's very pervasive. And we see how John clarifies that the way he defines sin. He defines it as lawlessness. It's, it's this rebellion. It's this anti-God defiance thing. So a true Christian is going to sin, but a true Christian is not lawless. He's not rebellious. He's not rejecting God. He's not defying God. I'm just going to do this. That's not where a true Christian's heart is. We might be weak. We might stumble but we're not practicing lawlessness. So I think that's what he's talking about here. It almost has to be. So we mentioned in the past that much of the New Testament is actually written to Christians who are sinning, right? And telling them to stop. So you can be a Christian and, and still sin because we have to grow out of that stuff. It's, it's, some of those old habits of ours, they're hard to shake. Those attitudes, they keep showing up now and then. Let me give you an example. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 he starts addressing believers' sins. So, you know, this is probably a pretty young church and he's writing to them, reminding them of the things he taught them and he's heard about how they're doing and they need a little more correction. So he says, this is Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Anybody guilty of an unwholesome word? <laughs> now, I see a couple of hands. But only such a word as is good for edification Building, other, building up other people according to the need of the moment. Now, I hope we're all growing in that and we're getting to where we really do think about what we're saying and our goal, no matter how much a person is a problem in our life or difficult or has maybe sinned against us, our purpose, our goal when we speak to them is to build them up. Not to build them up as a sinner, but to build them up as something better, right? To do good to them. That's the definition of love we talked about. Anyway, um, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tender hearted forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So Christians have to stop doing those things that grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, don't do that. So exert, why does he have to give exhortations like these to, to somebody who's born of God? I'm born of God. You don't have to give me any exhortation. Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Because we do stumble and sometimes we have trouble 
shaking off those behavioral habits that we have or sometimes we have a hard time trusting God. So that that's one reason being involved in church, I mean actively involved in a church community is so important and so essential because you correct me, I correct you, we work with each other. We don't, we don't want to drift into sin because we're bl we have blind spots and if other people are there to point out our blind spots, that's a great gift. And hopefully they do it with that gracious edifying purpose, right? And we can help other people keep from sinning. Brother, I got to talk to you about this thing in your life. I've seen this and I've noticed this. We need to help. That kind of thing, you know? We all need help and encouragement because we're all weak at times and other people need our encouragement. Now somebody might say, you know, I don't know. Seems like you're messing with the book here. It seems like John and Paul are saying two different things. John's writing to all these sinners and Paul's writing to all these sinners and John's saying, you know, a believer can't sin. That's what he says. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And Paul seems to be assuring Christians that sin is not the sort of thing that means they're not saved. So you can read it like that, but is the Bible contradict itself? No. And we already seen in context, John does recognize that believers sin. So he's not talking about every sin, that you can't ever commit a sin if you're a Christian. He just, you just can't take it that way. And Paul warns about being deceived as well. Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 33, I'm sorry. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's where that comes from. You know that's in the Bible? Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, he says. He says, don't be deceived about the influence of bad company. Stop sinning. Obviously, he were, he's writing to believers and he's saying stop sinning. So some of them are sinning. He says, don't be deceived by the influence of bad company because some of those people don't know God at all. So believers can be deceived and they can be guarded against. Oh, goodness. And then if you go to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 9, Paul warns the Corinthians that just like John does, that some of you are not saved. That you, if you're so committed to the sinfulness, you're not saved. Do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that the unrighteous, we're talking about righteousness in 1 John, aren't we? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. They keep saying that. I, it, it must be easy to be deceived about these things. So they keep warning us. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You just can't accept all of your sins and just do them and say, I'm saved. I went down, I went forward at a big crusade one time. I'm saved. Both John and Paul see a life of unrighteousness as characteristic of the unsaved. And both of them clearly acknowledge that Christians do sin and struggle with sin sometimes. They just say, deal with your sin. So back to 1 John chapter 3, John warns about being deceived too. In, in verse 7 of chapter 3, in verse 8, he uses another strong contrast to make sure his readers understand the source of this practicing of sin, this lawlessness, this defiance. So verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. 
The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. So if you're just living comfortably with your sin and you love it and you don't feel anything guilty about it and you're not going to do anything about it, you're on the devil's team. That's all there is to say. No matter how churchy you are or what a face you put on or how much you praise Jesus or go to Christian rock concerts or whatever, that doesn't mean anything if you're not living a righteous life, if you don't have a righteous disposition in your heart to purify yourself. If you're just a comfortable, I just sin, that's what I do, man. Then you're on the devil's side. And then continuing, verse 8 sort of expands on that idea that Jesus came to take away sin. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So sin is completely contrary to everything that Jesus is about. So now in verse 9, he uses the language of the new birth. So remember back in verse 6, he said, no one who abides in him sins. That's the language of abiding. That's been pretty much his language in the first half of the book. And I told you he's going to change that. But in verse 9, he starts using the language of the new birth here, which dominates the whole second half of the letter. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. And again, he uses that phrase. And that again, that idea is, is a lifestyle, a, a, a commitment to, a, this, is just, this is what I do. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, the seed of God, abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. That doesn't mean ever sin. It means this practicing sin idea, this lifestyle of sin idea. If you're a child of God, born of him, you're not just a person that's been declared saved. Now, you are declared a saved person when you are saved. That's called justification. You're justified by faith. Faith alone. You're declared free of the wrath of God and the penalty of sin. But that declaration of salvation is not separated. It's not a separate thing from this new birth and the things that come with that. You're not just a declared saved person. That, declare, that declaration of your salvation is not a standalone thing. You're born anew. You've got a new inside. So here John uses the language of a seed. He talks about a seed. There's a new life planted in you and it's working. It's active. It's growing. It's going to grow you into something else. Before, before you're a Christian, sin is as natural as can be. A, a, a sin nature is all a human being has. And, I'm not, and again, it's not necessarily fiendish, monstrous, Jack the Ripper sins. It's just rejecting God. Doing your own thing. Making your own choices. But in Christ, it's sin that's unnatural. Because this new thing is at work in you. Sin is going to be exposed and challenged and addressed by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He's going to challenge us about that stuff. God is there and he, you have this new capacity and this new 
desire for righteousness is suddenly at play in your life and a Christian sees sin exactly for what it is an offense an offense to God an offense to the Savior a mockery of his blood because he died for that sin so again verse 9 isn't saying that we're sin free but that we cannot sin you know there's sin and then there's sin you get the difference it's a, it's a very specific difference if you're listening to this on tape you won't understand what I just did there's big sin like a lifestyle of sin of this defiant attitude defiant heart this practicing sin defying God and then there's sins that we commit that are very real but it's not the same thing so there's a real difference between being a, a twice born man and a natural man a once born man there's a big difference between those two persons and it should be obvious it should be the main way it's obvious is the practice of righteousness and that's verse 10 by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother that's pretty clear and that summarizes I think everything we've said the righteousness test is right there anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God and did you notice at the end of verse 10 there the last phrase nor the one who does not love his brother see how he slipped into the love test that's next week <laughs> let's pray our great God who saves us so graciously so wonderfully and yet you are perfectly holy Never let us forget that your children are called to righteousness. The Spirit speaks to our hearts about righteousness. Motivates us to be righteous people. Help us to just yield our thoughts, our purposes, our decisions, our plans to you. To your holy scrutiny. Examine us. Show us where we're wrong. Take away all evil so that we may please you in all things and be your true children. In Christ's name we pray, amen.